you can do all this hand wringing about like how do I keep my kids safe and how do I find the right school and those are all important questions but you can't go wrong if you find a community of people who share your values who are going to love your child and look out for your child and who are going to keep you feeling grounded and like you have friends and community that cares about you and who you can care about. I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guest for this episode is author, journalist, and mother, Danny McLean. I mentioned the title Mother because Danny's work, her writing, and her journalism are primarily focused on the issues of race, reproductive health, and the related politics and policy issues. Danny is a columnist for The Nation, and she recently published her first book. It's titled We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. Sometimes on The Distiller, we talk about the mechanics of work, how somebody found or landed the job, but... Sometimes we talk about the philosophy of work, the politics of work, and the considerations that inform the work we do and the choices we make. And this is one of those conversations. Danny is a powerful thinker doing important work on issues that deeply impact Black women in this country. And whenever you talk about issues of motherhood and parenting, ultimately, you're getting at the heart of factors that influence the very nature of culture in our society. Danny and I sat down on a classic summer in the city kind of a day, 95 degrees in Cincinnati and 90% humidity, kind of day that sticks to you, that you wade through with effort. But we found a cool oasis at Lydia's on Ludlow, a neighborhood cafe and coffee shop in Cincinnati's Clifton Gaslight District, just down the road from the University of Cincinnati campus. We grabbed a table and kind of disappeared for an hour into a conversation about the intersection between race, motherhood, work, and meaning. I had never met Danny before we sat down for this conversation, but I immediately felt her intensity, the focus that drives her work. You will hear that in our conversation. But I was surprised by an openness and a lightness that I found striking for somebody whose work touches such heavy topics. And I came away with a profound respect and an appreciation for the work she's doing and for the impact she's having as a mother and a writer. I am very happy to share with you my conversation with author and journalist Danny McLean on The Distiller. So welcome. Thanks. First of all, yeah, thanks for coming. Um, I really appreciate it. It's about a thousand degrees outside <laughs> and it was sort of a last minute thing, but I appreciate you you making it. Yeah, Let's, thanks for the invitation. I have so many questions to ask about your work. I'm really excited to talk to you, but I want to start off by allowing you the opportunity to say, what is your work? Not your job and not necessarily what do you do, but what is your work in the way that you think about it? I'm a journalist and a writer. Um, I spend time asking people questions about things that, usually always things that I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. um, I have that kind of um, privilege at this point in my career that I don't spend much time writing things that I'm not interested in. We can talk about my newspaper years um, uh -huh. when I had to like do that random weekend cop beat, you know, cops beat or, or right. you know. But at this point in my career, um, yeah, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, I'm uh, a book author. Mm -hmm. um, I write and think a lot about reproductive health and about um, organizing or the ways that people work together to build power in their communities. Okay. Um, I'm very curious about issues of power, um, especially as it relates to race and gender mm -hmm. and class. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I think of myself as spending most of my time doing interviews and writing, but the reality is that I also spend a ton of time responding to emails, like many of us, and, um, you know, just kind of like managing social media accounts. Yeah. And <laughs> um, I think that's especially true because since April, I've been in the publicity phase of, um, you know, promoting my book, which right. came out April 2nd, yep. which means that I've been spending a lot less time um, doing the work and more time promoting yeah. my most recent project. Doing the, the hustle that yeah. you have to do to promote the thing that's out. Exactly. Cool. And now talk about your, your book is called We Live for the We, The P Political Power of Black Motherhood. Motherhood came out in April. April second, yeah. Is your first book? My first book. Okay, congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. It came out April second. It's published by Bold Type Books. Um, it is, in in some ways, it's a memoir. Um, 
but it's really more me weaving together my experience as a new mother with um, the stories and experiences of other uh, mothers, grandmothers, parents um, who had really fascinating things to tell me about what it means to raise black children at mm. this moment in time. Yeah. Um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, so it was a, three years ago, um, summer of 2016, when I was in my third trimester, um, I started reporting a story about um, the black maternal health crisis. And yeah. I, I wanted to know why it's the case that black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy and childbirth related complications. Yeah. And so I started, um, I had been covering reproductive justice um, uh, for the previous like six or seven years and um, I just I decided I wanted to write this story about black maternal health and I was really curious about how my own experience being pregnant and trying to find you know solid prenatal care and feeling comfortable during my prenatal visits and you know finding birth workers whether it be an OB or a doula to work with who I felt could really see my humanity mm-hmm. I was really being diagnosed with having uh, fibroids which are um uh, basically tumors on the uterus that are benign. Um, they're very, they're more common um, among black women of reproductive age than they are among women of other uh, races and ethnicities. So I was interested to see like the ways in which these things that I was experiencing connect to the many other stories we have about black women um, running into a lot of problems when they are carrying children yeah. or, or giving birth. And so um, so that kind of, I wrote an article that ended up being a cover story for The Nation that came out in February of 2017. Um, and that chapter, that, that uh, article was called What It Means, What It Feels Like um, to Be Black and Pregnant When You Know How Dangerous That Can Be. Mm-hmm. And that article became the foundation for the first chapter of my book. So that, so that period of my pregnancy um, really kicked off my um, exploration of black motherhood. Because I knew that even beyond the birth, I would have a ton of questions about how yeah. to do right by my, do yeah. my chi- by my child. And so I took the opportunity to, um, I, had had, I had a ton of sources because I had been covering this reproductive justice beat for years. And I realized that a lot of the people who, whose campaigns I had reported on or, you know, who I knew as, okay, there's a story I want to write about state violence or there's a story that I want to write about schools or whatever, I know that I should call this person. When I thought about it, a lot of my sources were also mothers and grandmothers, mm-hmm. and I had never talked to them about how they brought their politics into their parenting. Right. And so I looked at the book as an opportunity to do that. So what did you through first of all let's start with maybe some of the statistics because I think the general there's a general cultural idea hmm. of the threat to black women in motherhood that that uh, mortality rates are far greater but talk a little bit about just the reality of what it means to be pregnant and black in this country I think um, you know so that story that I mentioned came out in February of 2017 and since then we've had Serena Williams talk mm-hmm. about you know, her experience um, having to really like argue with her care team to say, I have a history of blood clots. I know I, you need to listen to my symptoms. This is how I'm feeling. Yeah. We've had Beyonce talk about her experience with, I think, preeclampsia and her situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had these high profile celebrity black women come out and talk about the fact that they nearly died during yeah. while giving birth, which I think has finally made it clear to people that this isn't just about, this isn't about poverty necessarily, that there's really something specifically about race and about um, being black when you go in into these medical systems, no matter where you have your college and graduate school degrees from, no matter how much money you make, there's something about racism and white supremacy that affects the kind of care that we get. And so um, I think that that's been really highlighted in the past two, three years in in a way that we hadn't been having a conversation about before. Um, And then that's led to, and then we've also had, like, there was this beautiful New York Times magazine cover story by Linda Villarosa about the black maternal health crisis. There was a series that ProPublica and NPR did. Um, So it's been, it's become part of the conversation, the the mainstream cultural conversation in a way that it hadn't been. Um, And so, yeah, and so, but, but I think when I was looking at this a few years ago, I felt like I had heard about the problems but I wasn't seeing a lot of people writing or talking about the solutions. Mm. So 
One another thing that's been interesting in the past few years is that now we have all these like um, bills that have been proposed by by legislate by legislators at the federal level and some work at the state level, some work that state legislatures are doing as well. We've seen Elizabeth Warren come out with her plan. You know, it's become something that politicians are really responding to the conversation and starting to advance some proposals, whether it be implicit bias training for mm -hmm. clinicians or demanding that um, healthcare systems track their, um, um, you know, mortalities and like be more specific about why people are dying yeah. and like what do what doctors and nurses and care team played what role at what point. So I think there's been a lot of change in recent years that I feel um, hopeful Cool. about what in your research what do you feel like you learned that you didn't know coming into writing the book and from these stories so much um man there's so much i mean so like moving on from the kind of birth and pregnancy moment because that's the first chapter of the book but then it goes on to like cover touch on issues like education early childhood development and talking to your kids about the body and consent and sex and mm. spirituality. Um, I would say there are a lot of things that I, that I didn't know. And that's why I wrote the book. Cause I knew that I didn't know a lot of things and I was curious. <laughs> I was like, I need Wait, to you didn't go into, You didn't start writing the book because you thought you knew it all. Right. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, this is kind of simple, but I was really... So the other thing that happened that, that summer that I was pregnant was um, I had been covering Black Lives Matter organizing for, you know, certainly since like 2014. Um, and I remember that summer, um, that was the summer that Philando Castile was killed by police. Alton Sterling was killed by police in Baton Rouge. Philando Castile in the Twin Cities. And I was just really scared in a way that I hadn't felt scared before. Um, and it was because... For yourself or for your child? Right. Well, I, had, I was not scared for myself. I was scared of like getting my heart broken by mm. something terrible happening to, happening to my child and not being able to protect yeah. that child. Um, but that, I mean, to your point, like, that's why I was scared. I was never scared when it was just like me, yeah. you know, being in the world. Um, because I had navigated this world for, you know, 35 plus years at that point in a black body. But knowing that it was soon going to be my responsibility to take care of this kid. I got, I was, I was just, and also just like the pitch of the rhetoric that summer in particular. I've talked to other people who agree like that summer, you know. But that's when we started hearing the whole like blue lives matter and like right. the framing of BLM organizers as like terrorists. Yeah. And it was just the pitch of the rhetoric got like, Oh, this is what drives people underground. Yeah, this totally. is like how people become political prisoners. This is like when people and people not being prosecuted and you yeah, know, Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. we just saw this with Eric, with the Eric Garner yeah. case, like Panaleo, like the federal government not bringing charges against Daniel Panaleo either. Yeah. So I just, so I think I started to just feel like I'm scared. Yeah. And so that was a question that I led with, with a lot, of, like in a lot of my interviews, I wanted to know how other mothers dealt with that fear, how they kept it from um, incapacitating them, like how mm -hmm. they were able to just live their lives and help their kids be kids. Um, if they also had to be afraid that like, their son who just got a driver's license said that, you know, he wants to stay out late to this party. Yeah. And like, how do you not become this overprotective parent? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very thankful for those conversations because what I learned was, um, you know, people just said, you have to have age appropriate conversations with your child so that that child understands the reality of the world to the best that they're able to at whatever age they are. Yeah. Right. But then you just have Without to somehow robbing them of the innocence of childhood exactly. and making them fearful through their whole lives. Exactly. Because that was another point that one mom in particular made. Um, this woman I talked to in Southern California, Kim Tabari, her son, when I interviewed her, I think he was 11. And she said, you know, so the world will try to, the world tries to take um, childhood away from black children. Mm -hmm. You know, we see these situations where like um, Tamir Rice, 12, yeah. you know, the police, barely stopped the car before jumping out and shooting him. Yeah. He was holding, holding a toy gun in Cleveland, in a Cleveland playground. So often our children are seen as being older than they are. If we look at um, like dress code violations and mm -hmm. who actually, when dress codes are enforced, it right. tends to be like curvier black girls than like 
you yeah. know, stick thin white girls, right? Because it's not about the age. It's that like, oh, you're too womanly to have that on. You're distracting the boys, right? right. So, so often um, our kids have their childhoods taken away from them, this mom said. And so it's part of our responsibility as parents to give them their childhood, hmm. make sure that they have protected space in which to play and be silly and be kids. Yeah. And so I heard that from a lot of parents, like, just play, just like <laughs> play and have fun and um be joyful and teach your kid to know joy and to experience happiness and pleasure and awe. Um, so I was very thankful for that advice. I'd also say um, the chapter of the book that's about uh, sex and consent. Like I had a lot of fascinating conversations for that chapter. I mean, my kid's three, so she'll be three next month. So mm-hmm. I'm not yet at that stage where I'm having to have a lot of conversations with her about that. Um, Although I will say that some of the things I learned from that reporting, you know, I use like anatomically correct language with my kid. Like Mm -hmm. that's your vagina or labia, not like, I don't know, making up some word. Right. Um, Because I, what I've learned is that that is a precursor to like having your kid feel ownership over their bodies. Yeah. Um, And speak about it with accuracy and not dance around the issue so that later when you're talking about the important stuff, you're not transitioning into some clinical frightening language that you haven't used all along. Exactly. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And then, you know, I had a conversation with one mom. Um, She's got like a preteen and a teenager, I think. And just, you know, she was telling me this is a mom. Thank Thank you. you. This is a mom. She lives in um, Atlanta Atlanta, and um, she found that her, she found a drawing that indicated that her son was watching porn Mm -hmm. and so she had a conversation with him about not just like are you watching porn don't do it but like okay so what did you see who was in the porn like did you see anybody with a body that looked like yours Mm -hmm. in other words like were there people of color black people in it right which i thought was so deep because it's like having a really early conversation about like having your mind colonized by these ideas of what's sexy and what's a turn on when that you're not in that picture. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Um, and then, and like the conversation that she then had with him about pleasure and like the performance of pleasure in porn versus yeah. like how do you really know when you're enjoying yourself or the person you're with is, right. is enjoying, um, you know, his or herself. So, yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I learned a lot and it gave me, it made me feel more confident that um, I'm not going to do it right. You know, I don't have all the answers. Nobody does, but mm-hmm. that... I can just keep turning to other people, uh, members of my community with questions when I feel stuck. One of the things that I found super interesting in the research about your writing and what of your writing that I've read, and it's in the title of your book, We Live for the We, mm-hmm. the difference between the we and the I. And I don't want to put words in your mouth um, about why that is so important mm-hmm. for black motherhood. Where does Talk a little bit about where that concept comes from and what it means to you. Yeah. Um, the title actually comes from a quote um, or from like a conversation that I had with a source. Uh, her name is Kat Brooks. She's an organizer in Oakland. She's done a ton of work around police accountability. She and her folks supported the family of Oscar. Um, no, that's not. Um, I'm think. I don't know why I just blanked on his name. I'm, Oscar Brown is the name that's coming to mind, but that's not. Oscar Grant was killed by um, Bay Area um, Rapid Transit Police, so Transit Police in Oakland, January 1st, 2009. Um, this was one of the first images of police violence that went viral where we saw a young man face down on the subway platform shot in his back by Officer Johannes Meserly. Oscar Grant. So Kat Brooks and her people supported his family in in the aftermath of of, um, that shooting. And she's just like a well-known Bay Area um, organizer. She ran for mayor last year. And I knew that I wanted to interview her for the book. I I knew she had a preteen daughter. Um, And we were talking in her office in Oakland last summer. And you know, Kat is somebody who, at that point, she was in the middle of a mayoral campaign. She's, like, always at rallies and meetings. And she was saying that sometimes her daughter will say to her, like, why can't we just be, like, a normal family? Like, why can't we just go on a hike? Or let's go to D- Disneyland or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they certainly do that. But Kat said, I tell my daughter all the time, and it's harsh, but we don't live for the I. We live for the we. Wow. And I was just like, 
It was so brilliant, in part because she was echoing what I had learned from the research I had done in, like, the scholarship on Black motherhood. So I had been reading people like Patricia Hill Collins, who... um, has written a ton on black motherhood and she she writes about the concept of other mothering or community mothering mm-hmm. in black motherhood. Like um, it's never, and what she advances, this idea that she and other scholars um, advance is that, you know, I think for many black mothers, it's never just enough to advocate on behalf of our individual child or family. We understand that if our child is being discriminated against at school or if we're afraid that our child is going to be mistreated by police or we can't find good health care for our kid, that's probably something that their peers are experiencing yeah. too. Yeah. And so um, what Hill Collins and others have argued is that um, we then engage in other mothering, you know, not you know, being parenting other children in the community who aren't necessarily our blood ties. Um, and engaging in community mothering, seeing the ways in which our advocacy and activism as mothers prepares us for like roles as community organizers and activists. Mm-hmm. And so when Kat said that, it just like all the lights went off in my head because she was giving a contemporary example of like this scholarship, you know, from the 80s and, and 90s that I was reading. Um, so, and that really, you know, this idea of the importance of building community is really strong in the book. I, I was going to say, and maybe in some of my reporting as well, um, I'm not sure that that's the case, but I have been interested in following what organizers and activists do. I'm super curious about people who who want to get engaged, um, who are interested in base building or like, um, mm. so not just like, I mean... <laughs> this might be like an unpopular argument, but not not just like our unpopular opinion, not just being on Twitter or like social media platforms, like being super yeah. righteous or saying the right thing or whatever. But like, what does it mean to try to join with other people who are who who you see and can feel and who are mm-hmm. in your neighborhood and um, trying to make change together? Even when it's small, even when it's local, even when it's something that you can't necessarily take to scale. But that's but real and that's tangible. That's real and that yeah. improves you, the conditions of your life and the lives of people that you care about. Mm. And so that is a thread in the book for sure. And something that I was told over and over again, especially by like elder people who I interviewed, they were just like, you got to build community for yourself and that child. Like, yeah. You just... You can do all this hand-wringing about, like, how do I keep my kids safe and how do I find the right school? And those are all important questions. But you're going to, you can't go wrong if you find a community um, of people who share your values, um, who are going to love your child and look out for your child, and who are going to, like, keep you feeling um, grounded and, um, and like, you have friends and community, uh, you know, that, that cares about you and who you can care about. Yeah. And I'm, I got to imagine as well, like dealing with the exhaustion mm-hmm. of, you know, not just sort of seeing you were talking about like the the tenor of that summer in 2016, yeah. but it's kind of continued since then, and not just dealing of the exhaustion of that for yourself. But I mean, parenting is exhausting under perfect circumstances, right? Without knowing that the culture is stacked aggressively against your child, right? Uh, in that way, the, uh, you how just, old is your little one? I feel like I've met. Well, I've got a two-year-old, but I've okay. also got a seventeen-year-old. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen your two-year-old and so I'm seventeen-year-old. Kind of, kind of there at, at both ends of the spectrum, and it's interesting because I've had, you know, I had the the discussions with my seventeen-year-old about sex and porn and identity and what's real in terms of like what are you what are you looking at and is that a, a realistic representation right. of pleasure and of identity but without layering mm-hmm. I don't have to layer race on top of that right I don't have to go oh well most of the stuff that you're gonna that you're gonna see that has a black body in it that's porn is somehow taboo exactly of its, it's own very like nature ebony chicks or chocolate exactly. bodies or like it's yeah. clearly for the white gaze it's a whole other thing yeah yeah, I mean, it's just something that I, that I don't even have to consider. I was reading um, with the the idea of the we and the I idea. I came across a really interesting idea. I was reading Claudia Rankin's recent piece in the New York Times. Oh, like when she talked to white men about their privilege? Yeah. I haven't read it. I just saw the headline. It's amazing. I, I just read it this morning. But one of the things that she talks about, and I wish I had written down the quote, is she says, part of part of engaging, she's talking about an interaction with this guy on an airplane. Uh, Because she's trying, basically the article is she's trying to come up with sort of like 
the courage to take advantage of the opportunity to quiz white men about their experience of racism. Mm. Um, and she says part of um, her being willing to participate in this interaction, and she quotes somebody else, but she basically says it's, it's an ascent, um, it's an acceptance that in this interaction I am not an individual being. It's mm. that I represent a larger that in order, in order to have a successful interaction, in order to remain engaged with this guy, she had to let go of the idea that this racial interaction was about her, mm. that it was about a larger sense mm-hmm. of, of racism, and that he didn't, it's sort of like a good and a bad thing, that he didn't even see her as an individual person. Right. He saw her as a thing that he didn't understand. And yeah. so that we and I yeah. concept is both <laughs> sort of the positive of creating community, but also the idea of letting go of the idea... I mean, it is both personal and, com- yeah. and completely impersonal. That's interesting. I need to, I'm going to read that when I go home because it would seem to me that he also has to be engaged in that to a certain extent, too. Because often when you talk, that's why it's so hard to talk about race with white people because, I mean, I, you speak for yourself, please, as a white person. No, 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 yeah. Um, that it seems often that it's like very hard for white folks to understand that they're not just moving through the world as individuals. Yeah. That they're like participating in something. Yeah. That whiteness is a thing and yeah. you're like participating from it and in many cases, um, um, benefiting from it. Yeah. So. No, it's an interesting thing. I had, um, it's funny because I, I had an interaction with Claudia Rankin like two or three years ago that was this, it was interesting for me to read her perspective on this mm. because there was a tour that she did at the Cincinnati Art Museum and because I knew a friend that had that was working at the museum at the time, he invited me to come on this tour and we were looking at one of the pieces and she was sort of saying, here's, here's my experience of this piece. And I said, oh, it's... I, that's interesting. My experience of this piece is is kind of like this, and I didn't I didn't see those as antagonistic or competitive. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, people experience art in different ways. Mm-hmm. And she kind of turned to me and she said very pointedly, "Well, that's probably because I'm black and you're white." And I like, in retrospect, I wish I had said, "Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how," because I believe that you're right, but I don't inhabit your perspective. Yeah, and I want to know. I want to grow. Yeah, um, yeah. It was really interesting for me to read her perspective in this article. And she's a powerful woman. She's an amazing writer. But also to read her insecurity of coming up mm. against this and trying to engage it. Yeah. And that it took courage for her to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, and not just the the general courage of talking to strangers, but also sort of an insecurity about her whole place in this and what her mental process was in, in engaging with it on a large scale and engaging with it with, with individual people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, I feel a little uncomfortable talking about it because I haven't read it, but I'm going to anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, would, I would think that there's like a piece there around insecurity, but also... Um, uh, not finding the exchange exhausting. Yeah, right. Of because the defensiveness that she's likely to come up against. Yep. I would. I mean, c- clearly she was. She wanted to engage in this because she was personally curious about it and wanted to, like, I would think, translate it to a translate her findings, you know, mm-hmm. for a larger audience. But I think um, it's making me think about, yeah, just that work of like the kind of emotional labor that can be involved in communicating across lines of race. And I thought about that a lot in writing my book. And I think in my journalistic, in my um, just, you know, reported articles as well. I really don't try, I really try to write things that I'm actually curious about. Now, I I don't like this kind of stance of like getting white people told that we sometimes see in like digital, like internet uh, culture. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that I'm like, standing on high with some delivering the message like yeah. educating someone else um i really like to explore things that i'm super curious about myself that i that i don't know the answers to and i think particularly for this book i was really interested in writing a book that's it's for everyone and i've heard i've had people say like wow i don't even need to be a parent to get something from this cool. book i don't need to be a black person to get something from this book but i really wanted to center black women as sources and really have in my mind a black audience and doing the work yeah um, um because i wasn't interested in doing a project where i had to do a lot of like uh translating or explaining mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um i think some of that is baked into my training as a journalist like i 
don't, I try to steer away from jargon and like being yeah. super opaque and anything, but I really wanted to write something that felt, um, that felt like black women would enjoy and feel, and that would make us feel seen. And, um, so hopefully I, I accomplished that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, it's also interesting. I mean, I feel like, um, I, it was probably that summer of 2016. I went to a friend of mine who works in this area, works in the area of criminal justice and racial inequity. And I just said, like, I don't know what I don't know. Right. What, what should I read? Give me the reading list. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, the reading list is all black men. Interesting. Talking about yeah. the experience of black men. Yep. And so the experience of black women and of black motherhood in the culture is a completely, you know, ta Coates, like between the world and me is to his 15-year-old son. son. Yeah. And that experience James of... James Baldwin's uh, letter to his nephew. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, which that comes from. But that experience of black women is a whole other cultural perspective mm. and a really wonderful sort of... I don't know, like, um, just in, in my experience of, of your writing, a sort of enveloping yeah. we perspective yeah. Yeah, that for maybe sure. the male perspective doesn't fully kind of inhabit. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, one of the first, so I think it was in 24, this is the first, um, it wasn't the first article that I wrote for The Nation, but it's, it's the article that got me my, like, blog or column at The Nation. Um, mm. Not column, I was a blogger there. But, um in 2014, the Obama administration started My Brother's Keeper. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, but it was this whole initiative to, like, lift up. Um, it was framed as men of color, but it was pretty specifically, like, well, I, I think black men were centered in the narrative. Yeah. But, um, but it was about, like, figuring out what's wrong with black boys and men. And... Um, and, and by what's wrong with, I mean, like, when you look at the data, like, why, you know, incarceration is one part of the equation, but look at, like, education and suspension and expulsion, discipline, yep. um, health outcomes. You know, they were taking a pretty comprehensive look at, like, how can we improve conditions and mm -hmm. experiences for, for black boys and men. And it grew out of this whole philanthropic initiative that had started, I think, in New York City um, under the, as part of the Bloomberg administration. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I and a lot of other black women were, like, uh, Hello. excuse me, like, we're in those same classrooms, we're in those same homes, we're in those same neighborhoods, on those same stoops, like, what about us? And, um... Birthing and raising these black men and dying yeah. at higher rates because of it. And also, um, dealing with police violence, yeah. you know, and I think the whole Say Her Name movement, the work of Andrea Ritchie, this brilliant legal scholar, um, the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, really... We we do experience state violence as well. Often it's sexualized. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about the case of that Oklahoma police officer who had sexually assaulted all of these um, black women, primarily sex workers, mm -hmm. because he could exert all this power over them. Right? right. You know, they didn't have any um, any way to like push back until they finally did, and he was um, sentenced, um, charged and sentenced. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a way in which the 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 narrative about black life in this country has for way too long been um, shaped around black men's experiences. And I'm, and I'm really thankful, and this is one of my learning edges too, I'm really thankful for the ways in which not only like women, like cis, gender, heterosexual women's experiences, but like queer, gender nonconforming black people mm -hmm. are also part of the conversation. Yeah, and and yeah. if we look at like the attacks and, and killings of black trans women, yep. We see how often the state violence and also just like intra-community violence against black bodies um, is a serious problem. And so what I'm thankful for when I mentioned my learning edge is like I learned so much. I'm 41. I learned so much from younger folks who just their understanding of like gender and sexuality is so much broader and more expansive than, than mine. I'm learning, but a lot of them are just kind of coming up with this awareness and the ways in which they're really expanding the conversation around like what is the black experience? Yeah. Not the black male experience, but like black people's experience. The broader, know. huger black experience. Absolutely, right, like right. as broadly understood as possible. I'm really thankful for that. I was thinking even today, I was thinking in preparation for talking to you, for some reason I was I was on the strain of, mind, uh, of thought in my mind about the idea of America as a melting pot. Uh -huh. You know, like I was raised with this idea, well, America is a place for everybody to come, right. which is kind of a ridiculous idea, um, especially given where we Recent are, right? Events. Yeah, and who's who's stirring the pot? Who gets to decide like mm. what the outcome 
is and is it you know the ways in which it's maybe healthy and maybe not to aspire toward this version where everybody's just this like conglomeration and yeah and and I I know that's a that's a whole big idea and I was just toying with it in my head but it's like even that idea gets to be determined by whoever has the power and whoever's saying no we're all together as long as I'm the one with the big spoon yeah and as long as you know the melting pot has always confused me because it it the visual image at least is is that like we're somehow all melting down to be like the same homogenized which we're not I mean they're you know like white ethnics have assimilated and become white right but like I will never as as proven by Trump's comments like go back where you came from Ayanna Presley was born in Cincinnati where the hell is she supposed to go back to right you know where doesn't matter how many generations yeah right but like I will never be or like when I, I remember traveling abroad I think I was in Paris and like this Frenchman was like, where are you from? Like the States. No, where are you really from? I don't know why you're ashamed. Yeah. It's like, no, I, you must not know me. I'm a black American. Like we exist. <laughs> I can tell you that That's my people where I was come born from and Mississippi and Alabama, but beyond that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think that like the whole, I, I think when I was, my memory of that whole lie, it, um, or not lie, but like that kind of um, story is that uh, the United States is a salad bowl. I remember hmm. hearing that more. Like, Interesting. We're all here coexisting. I think that was like the more multi-culti yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. framing of it. Yeah. But, um, I guess that has a little bit of less less of a just we're all going to end up somehow living nameless, in faceless, mm. like looking looking the same. Yeah. You you talked about. I mean, this is heavy work. Like and it's heavy work over a long time. You wrote, you wrote the book, but you've been working on this for a long time. And you talked about the the experience of trying to protect joy for your daughter. Mm. How do you do that for yourself? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you deal? So I, uh, your name first came across my path in my conversation with Kate Hanizian, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things that I've talked to Kate about a lot in the work that they're doing. Is how when you're dealing with such heavy things on a daily basis, do you? deal with mm. the heaviness how do you cultivate hope in the face of a nation that especially with the work that you're doing seems to be moving further mm. and further away from yeah. some some actual discussion and understanding of how to live together yeah and uh, you know in any way that you want like personal practices um how you do it for your daughter just what does that mean for you mm-hmm. well i think that's i think um a desire to stay hopeful and like somewhat optimistic drives I think that's part of why I'm really interested in what organizers and activists are doing because at least the people who I'm who I've been focused on are very solutions oriented Mm. so they're dealing with the reality the realities of the world that we live in but they're thinking um what you know how do we how do we improve on this how do we survive you know so that's part of like in the work, at least, how I orient myself to try to um, just not not only maintain joy, but, like, be interested. Because I think, you know, this is, I was reading something, I think the Solutions Journalism Network, which I which is a great resource for people who are interested in this stuff. I think I read some study from them that was saying um, just how much people are tuning out from the news recently. Because yeah. it's, like... Exhausting. Yeah, if you have a certain political perspective, like, how much devastating news on a daily basis can you take and so people are just tuning out which is part of the strategy the overwhelmingness of it to get you to actually just stop paying attention the overwhelmingness the distraction so there's already one terrible thing happening and then here comes some like incredibly you know terrible comment about these four congresswomen or whatever right um so just to stay interested myself in the work like i like to learn about people who are looking at what could work Mm -hmm. um so that's one piece. I mean, I um, I have I just got back from a week in LA with my daughter and two dear friends. We um, my friend lives on the beach and um, Redondo Beach, and my daughter and I and another dear friend of ours. This was our second time out there this year. I just really like vacation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to be real. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I try to like, you know, once or twice a year go someplace that's really beautiful. Yeah. I used to do meditation retreats. I started a meditation practice. Um, actually I started my, I was introduced to, um, 
a meditation practice right down the road at the meditation center off Hamilton. Mm -hmm. This was like in 2004, 2005. And then I moved to the Bay Area where they, I became part of this robust um, sangha called the East, uh, East Bay um, Meditation Center. And from that, I started going on like weekend long retreats and then uh, week long silent meditation retreats, which I found I have found to be really helpful and just grounding. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I moved back here from Oakland, California um, four years ago. And being around family brings a lot of um, ease into my life, especially as the parent of a young child. Mm -hmm. She's with my mom right now. She's often either with my mom or um, her dad's mom. Um, so like, you know, trying to be part of a, you know, trying to be a parent in community with a larger kinship network yeah. that brings a lot of ease into my life. I can't imagine being like in New York or the Bay or places where I've lived and trying to do this on my own. Right. Um, I go to yoga when I can right down here at it's yoga. Um, <laughs> and and that's been a part of my life for a long time. I try to exercise. I try to move my body. That makes me feel better. I joined the Y specifically so I could have access to a sauna during the winter. Okay. Because I just, Kate and I talk about this a lot, actually. Okay. So one of the things that's hardest for me about moving, <laughs> living back here from the Bay Area, in the Bay, there's like this whole culture of baths, right? You have Korean baths, Japanese baths. Uh -huh. You can go, so you can drive a couple hours and be in like, you know, hot springs out in nature. That yeah. was a big part of my life when I lived out there. Right it's very important to me. Mm. Um, and we just don't have that here. I think because no. we don't have like, you know, a big Turkish community or Eastern European community or Korean or Japanese, the people who bring that yeah. that part of their culture with, you know, with them. And so I've been missing that. Greatly. My friend Stephen was telling me recently, he, uh, he and his brother uh, met in Chicago and that was his birthday present yes. to his brother as he took him to, I, don't, I think it was a Russian yeah, they have good, bath and it was a whole all day oh experience. Oh my gosh, it can be an all day thing. And so I, once I realized like, we really don't have this here, I, yeah. um, I joined the Y just so I could go to the, yeah sauna during the winter right on um so i do i'm like you know i try to take care of my body and i try to give myself time just to um just to relax i watch a lot of tv and i admit that um you know <laughs> i had some shame around that and then emily nussbaum the tv critic for the new yorker was on fresh air i guess a few days ago and i just listened to her podcast to uh -huh. that episode today i was like i'm gonna stop being ashamed right that on. i watch a ton of television after do what I put you gotta my do <laughs> yes yeah, seriously <laughs> it's heavy work during the day. Yeah, a little escapism, especially at this moment in history, right. is entirely... I turned my brain off. Though I will say my favorite show right now is this HBO show, show called Years and Years. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. <laughs> it's like this total, you know, dystopian, like, horror show. What is it with... I mean, uh, there are certain things I can't watch. I can't watch, like, shows where the the main violence is happening to children. Oh I can't, God. like, as a parent, I can't do any of that. Me neither. If somebody's like... I can't even watch Handmaid's Tale. No, because it's I had to stop. Yeah, I didn't even start because I read the book. And yeah. someone was like, yeah, they're ripping kids out of their parents. No, at this point in history, I was just like, maybe some other time I could watch this, but it's a little too too present For sure. right now. But if it's, if it's a couple generations away, if it's fantastic enough... Yeah, that I'm not going to lay awake in, oh, in the future, or the just generally like if the story is far enough from what it seems like it could be happening. Yeah, don't today. watch years and years. I'm going to tell you right now, <laughs> don't do it. Don't no. do it to yourself. Oh. No. But there is something about about a lot of that dystopia. As long as it doesn't keep me awake at three o'clock in the morning, which some of it does. I know. I agree. It scratches an itch for sure. But yeah. So you you lived in Oakland for how, how long? Six years. Okay. Uh, and you said you moved back primarily because of family? Yeah. Um, my, so I left here when I was 18 to go to college. I'm from here, born and raised, left um, when I was 18 to go to Columbia, New York City. Um, to study journal journalism? No, I was, um, I was a history major. Okay. And uh, then I went back there to get a graduate degree in journalism okay. when I was like in my mid-20s. Um, so... Yeah, so I moved back here because um, my aunt, who was like a parent to me, um, was sick. She had cancer, and um, she was ill, and I wanted to come be with her in the last few weeks of her life. And then after she passed away, it just um, felt like the right thing to do, to stick around. I was just kind of like sticking around for a while, and then I met somebody, and um, 
we got pregnant and um, yeah, I had decided to yeah. stay to stay here for a while. Is, I'm an only child and my mom is here and it was just nice to be close to her. All that support. Yeah. yeah. Is doing the work that you do dramatically different doing it in the Midwest than it is doing it on the coast? It is. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, well, for one thing, the trying to figure out how to do it is hard because, you know, Cincinnati deserves a better media um, ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, most mid-sized cities do. That's yeah. kind of what the gutting of the newspaper industry has done. Yep. But I would love, I mean, I wouldn't mind covering local news. I mean, I'm not a TV reporter. It seems like most of the jobs are in TV. But I think not living in a media cap one of the media capitals so new york or dc and to some extent la mm -hmm. it's hard to figure out how to be a journalist right now yeah. because um even though most of these jobs they're like a ton of internet journalism jobs mm -hmm. and you should be able to do them from wherever in the country um because most people are not reporting any place except on their phones or on the internet anyway right. many of these places you have to live in new york or dc um, so it's, that's, it's tough. It's tough figuring out how to stay in journalism and not live in one of those cities. Um, is that part of the pivot to writing a book? I mean, is that like on some level, is that a freedom to do your own thing now versus just having, you were, you were talking about, you did the beat writing for years and years and yeah. was that Milwaukee? Yeah, I worked for the paper. Um, I worked for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Yeah. And, um, I was there for a couple of years as an education reporter. It was great in that, um, I mean, it was, I don't know how people do journalism or I would not feel comfortable doing what I do if I hadn't had to go work a beat, like go to school board meetings, you know, um, right. get out into classrooms, um, literally like go. I mean, I've had to do so many things from just, you know, shoe leather work. Just mm -hmm. like you're trying to figure it out. You're talking to, you're knocking on doors. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't feel confident to do what I do if I hadn't had, if I hadn't put in that time, hmm. both as a journalism student, as a, you know, I interned at the Journal Sentinel and at the Miami Herald and then got hired at the Journal Sentinel and was there for a couple of years. Um, having to work that weekend cops beat where you're like sitting there listening to the police scanner. Right. Um, and then going to like the press conferences where the public information officer tells you the police perspective on something that happened. Not, and then I just want to mention like one of the things that that did for me was um, I was just like, I could never do this for my job. Not like be a newspaper reporter, but that, that particular beat um, because it's like, wow, our whole understanding of crime is shaped by like, we, there's like newspapers across the country have someone just listening to a police scanner and then going to hear the police talk about mostly like burglaries, mm -hmm. you know, like poverty crimes or like low level offenses that are like black, young black people for the most part. Yeah, being just broken windows, the, policing yeah, type stuff. Yeah. And that becomes the news, but like right. white collar crime, you know, when I was a journalism student. Um, and I went to Columbia, so this is New York City. What they did for your course, Reporting and Writing One, everyone got assigned a neighborhood to go cover, fi figure it out. But it, they were all neighborhoods in the Bronx and Brooklyn and, Har and Harlem, right? Yeah. They were all like low-income communities. No one got assigned to like the Upper East Side right. or Chelsea. Like we didn't get to go practice on white people, right? right. You get sent right. into low-income communities of color to practice. Yep. And that is so much about what journalism is, right? Like that's so much of what we're grappling with now. As there are these debates about, like, can we use the word racist and talk, you know, it's like, yeah, 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 you know, it's this whole idea of like, who is a legit, what is objectivity? Who's a legitimate, you know, journalist? If you actually have a power analysis or you actually come from a community of color or a low income community, like, are you trustworthy or are you like, do you come into it with an axe to grind? So having experiences at newspapers gave me a ton of time to think about, like, wow, right. this is the business. Hmm. Like, can I actually do this? That's crazy. And it makes sense now. I mean, you see people on social media will post like a New York Times headline and say, you know, like, here, I fixed this for exactly. you, like an openly racist New York Times mm -hmm. headline. Mm -hmm. And it's, oh, of course, of course they get writ written that way, even by well-meaning people who've mm -hmm. just been raised within the system and never challenged it. Exactly. And those people, were, at least in my experience, were often seen as like, 
the good raw material, like the good people to move, to help through the pipeline, right? right. To, to move up and get those New York Times copy editor jobs or whatever. Yep. Whereas someone like me who came out of the background, I mean, I've been very lucky. I don't have complaints, but like I had done organizing and activism before I went to journalism school. Um, I, of, I often felt like I had to prove something. I had to prove that like, I can do this. I can be objective. I the, That your biases aren't going to influence your work. I felt like that earlier in my career for real, or for, for sure. Yeah, and now, yeah. But now I do more... I have a lot more freedom. I write for the nation, which mm-hmm. is like a, you know, a progressive, um, you know, a vo- it lifts up voices from the left. Um, so I don't feel like I have to walk that line quite so much anymore, but it's still something that I think about. Yeah. And that's gotta be, I mean, there's a parenting decision there. There's an economic decision to make about you're living here in the Midwest for journalism, thanks to corporate consolidation. And all of that is basically not something that's res- respected. Right. Uh, and those trade-offs between, well, I could live in Oakland and practice and do good work and be vital and make a, a higher income and also raise my daughter apart from the network and right. family and people. And pay three times as much in rent. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's tricky. I'm, I, I'm trying to figure all this out right now. I don't have any answers, you know. Yep. I also think a lot about, I did... Um, I was communications director for an organization called Color of Change, which is a civil rights organization. And I, I've done comms work at a, different places, including Drug Policy Alliance. That was one of my first jobs out of college, um, looking at the war on drugs. And really, I was like 22, learning about like, oh, this is actually a public health crisis, not a criminal justice. Why do we, why are the police and courts yeah, be, right. like, dealing with addiction? This yes. is actually... Um, and I did commute. That's where I learned how to do public interest PR. And so I think a lot at this point in my life, I could make a lot more money if I went back. Oh, into, sure. If I went back, even like PR for social justice nonprofits, mm-hmm. I could make a lot more money than I make as a journalist. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I feel a lot of those pressures and living in the Midwest makes it um, just kind of turns the heat up on all that. Right. So how does that influence decisions you're making now? I mean, you're promoting the book. I don't know, you know, in terms of how you classify the 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 lines that you draw in your head. Right. You're a newspaper journalist. Uh, you're writing for the nation. You're a, 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 now you've got a book out. Um, ostensibly, it's the same work. Um, but you know, author slash journalist. Those are potentially two different things. Mm. Does does all does it create any? decision making in your head or is this just no this is a straight line I was I was writing in this form and now I'm writing in this form and the promoting of the book is a continuation of that work or does this represent a shift in career for you that's gonna that you're gonna look back on and say that was the time in which things changed I I certainly left room for that to happen like I remember people saying like well what are you going to do after the book and my response was I just want to see what opportunities if any the book opens up and so Mm -hmm. I'm Still, like, wait, if you have opportunities, <laughs> I mean, you're waiting. Open for opportunities <laughs> right now. Open for opportunities. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I I really don't know. I think um, I, want to, I want to keep doing, I feel great about the work that I've done in the past decade. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I used this phrase, um, reproductive justice, earlier, and I know a lot of people don't know what that means. So just to circle back, like, um, yeah. A lot of people, I got a fellowship to cover reproductive rights, which I think is generally understood as like, um, you know, the it's generally covered. Most journalists cover that as like access to abortion and yeah. contraception. Right. But I was, I felt, I knew that there was something missing. It just, as I started working the beat, I was like, there's more to this story. And so I... Um, started meeting mostly women of color, mostly um, a lot of black women who introduced me to the reproductive justice framework, which broadens, which talks about, it's a human rights framework, which advances, um, makes the argument that we have the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent the children that we do have in safe and healthy communities. Hmm. And so when the kind of traditional way that we that we talk about... It's amazing that that's revolutionary. I know! It, and it is, but it's amazing that those basic conceits would be revolutionary exactly. conceits. Exactly, and yeah. that we don't have access to that because, as I said, it's a human rights framework because... Yeah. The way that we understand in this country, we talk a lot about civil and political rights, but not about social and economic rights. Right. Because once you start saying that someone has a human right to something, it's like, well, how if I have the right to housing or the right to an education, who's going to pay for it? Right. right? And yeah. In, in our country, capitalist society, yeah, like, that it's a threat to somebody else's ability to keep all the money. Exactly. Yeah. So um, 
that really opened up my mind because I was like, oh, that the 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 way that reproductive the way that these issues are currently covered, people are just focusing on the right to not have a child. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean? You know, what are the struggles out here for people that are like uh, the issues that we started talking about at the at yeah. the top of this interview? Like, I want to keep my child safe from state violence. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. You know, I want clean water in my community, Flint, Michigan. How do I yeah. and, and other places as well? So I feel really proud of the reporting. I think I really carved out like an interesting beat covering the reproductive justice movement, reproductive justice organizing. I would, and there are more stories to tell about that every day. Um, and so I would love to keep doing the kind of thing. I would love to keep doing what I'm doing. And I, I think it's possible. It's just, um, I know what I don't want to do. I mean, to your point about like, does having written this book kind of represent a, a like shift or now am I like an author? Mm -hmm. I don't, some people are like are cranking out dozens of books over the yeah. course of their careers. <laughs> and it's like, maybe you have that much to say, but I don't want to ever, you know, be chasing a book contract because I'm trying to figure out what my money situation is yeah. over the next two years. Like I want to write a book when I feel like I have something important to share or mm -hmm. something that I'm curious about that's, that um, demands more than 5,000 words or something. Right. Um, right. So I'm really in a stage of a lot of questions around work and um, where my career is going to lead me next. It sounds, it, it seems to me like a lot of folks um, especially if they're doing something that, that in any way has a public audience, um, you know, and certainly writing and speaking, there's like this, I used the word earlier, but it's like you get the sense when you encounter somebody whose life requires a certain amount of the hustle. Mm. And it's like, it's the social media hustle and it's the PR hustle. And it's like, I got to answer every phone call and it's like, I got to be present in every discussion. <laughs> and it does seem like taking on, you know, the, in, in talking to you, I mean, your answers to all these questions kind of answer the question itself, which mm. is, it seems to me like you are, you are pretty purely a journalist. Mm. Um, and yes, there's a certain amount of the hustle that's pushing right. itself into your world, which you're not necessarily seeking. And whatever, you do with that what you do, what you, you want, but you're not, you're not pursuing that. Whereas a lot of people would be like, no, I got a plan. I'm going to write a oh, book and that's going like to put me I'm on the speaking circuit. And now whatever. I'm an Instagram yeah. influencer or whatever. Yeah, I that's don't. not your, your deal. It's not, I'm terrible on social media. I wish I were better. <laughs> I just did a book of in LA with my friend, Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote, um, her latest book is called Pre Pleasure Activism. And she wrote a book before that called Emergent Strategy. And she's, um, she's got like I don't know, I think like tens of thousands of Instagram followers or she's quite, you know, her <laughs> latest book is a New York Times bestseller. Um, but she's like brilliant on social media. And um, and I think what, you know, when I look at someone like her, I'm like, she's really doing it right because she's authentic. And yeah. because I've known her for 20 years, I'm like the Adrian you see on Instagram is actually Adrian. It's not a persona. Right. Um, but yeah, I just, and there I are people who can do touch. that. I'm making it like this whole pejorative thing. No, there are people who can yeah. do that whole side of it and be completely authentic mm -hmm. about it. But then there are people who that would kill yeah. the authenticity for right. the, the thing that they're doing if they yeah. try to pursue that. Yeah. I'm just not, that's not one of my strengths. I'm not really good at, um, not great at promoting myself. I will say that I re I feel really, um, lucky um that there's interest from folks like you like people with podcasts who want to talk to me about mm -hmm. the book or about whatever else because i actually really enjoy this mm -hmm. and i and i like doing talks i i did a um my book tour took me across the country and i love doing events at independent booksellers and um so i don't mind that so much but yeah i do i it's funny last night i was sitting out on my porch and i was like looking out and i was like where did the fireflies go it's like when I was little, there were so many fireflies in mm -hmm. my, you know, I grew up in Camp Denison out east, like near Milford and Indian Hill. And I was just like, that is bizarre. And probably someone has written about this, but mm -hmm. I should write about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had some other story. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like story ideas or curiosity yeah. is yep. coming up for me again in a way that it's been dormant for a while. Nice. Because I've been in hustle mode. I'm right, not thinking right, right. about like, what am I genuinely curious about? But I'm thinking about like, how do I write this pithy tweet so that it gets interactions, you know? Or like, yeah. how do I lay this book on my kitchen table so I can take a picture of it in a way that's going to look good on Instagram? You know, just totally. like, bullshit, essentially. Like, I just... Yeah, yeah. 
it's hard for me. I think what it's, it's not that it's bullshit. It's that things that come easily to other people, people just kind of like do these things with joy. I, I stress out over yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over the publicity well, and the marketing and a, piece I think a surprising it. number of those people are, are driven to doctors by the anxiety of having to keep that up as yeah. well. They just present yeah. well. And there are people for whom that is life-giving and more power yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah. But, so it I, feels good to feel the curiosity arising again. We started talking about motherhood, and we started talking about your daughter, and I'm interested in, from, a, from the perspective of just talking about work, what is all of this work that you do, what impact does it have on how you think about talking to your daughter about work? Mm, um, that's so interesting. I've had, I've had several guests on the show um, where we sort of have hinted at this discussion that the discussion of, you know, the discussion of motherhood is inherently political. The discussion of work is inherently political. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I talk to a black woman, the discussion of work and opportunity and what it takes to get to the level that you've gotten to is in and of itself a political discussion. Mm-hmm. Do you, she's only three, so I don't mean to put you too far into the future, mm-hmm. but how do you want to have the discussion with her about how you've made the professional and economic choices you've made and how do you think about what that discussion will look like for her as she gets older. That is so interesting. Um, I mean, what what first comes to mind is that my daughter is already getting, I, her sense of what work is based on observing me is like, she came to my book launch at Joseph Beth and she knows that that's my work. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just in LA and she came to the event that my friend and I did there and she's like, are we going to your event now? Um, she sees me um, when I pick her up from my mom's or from her other grandmother's and she'll say like, and I say, what did you guys do today? And then she'll say, what did you do today? And I say like, I talked to this person or I just, you know, she knows that I drop her and then come back home. She knows mm-hmm. I work at our house. And, and I'm thinking of the moments where someone calls me and it's not a call that's scheduled, but I need to take it or like something immediate comes up and I need to get on online. And she often wants to crawl in my lap while I'm on the phone or whatever. So she's understanding work as something that's very integrated into my life. Hmm. Whereas when I was growing up and I watched my mom go to work, she went to work. Yeah. She went to work at eight in the morning and she came home at five at night. And, it, and um, part of that has to do with um, a, a generational change, mm-hmm. like the way that the nature of work is changing. But it also has to do with, um, like, I get to do... You know, I get to do intellectual work that isn't constrained by a place. It doesn't require me going someplace. It requires me being organized and having interesting thoughts and being able to communicate them. Um, And I'm I'm really glad that she's seeing that. You know, I think I hope that that opens up her ideas about what's possible in her own life for work. I like that she gets to see me in conversation, you know, that she sees me in front of an audience. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sure she's curious. Like, well, what does my mom have to say that people want to hear? She knows. So the cover of my book is a picture of me holding her and she calls it our book. And she knows the title of the book. That's great. Yeah. And so as she gets older and she can read it and better understand, I love, I'll be so curious to talk to her about and what she thinks about it. But yeah, I mean, I think that I feel proud that I'm able to show her um, that um, that I've figured out a way to make a living doing something that I love and that I feel really attached to. And it's the same with her dad. I mean, he he lives in Chicago. He's a um, we're not together anymore, but they're very they're very close. They have a good relationship. And he is a tennis pro. He teaches tennis, mm. and he started um, playing tennis when he was a kid with the Inner City Tennis Project here in Cincinnati. Right and on. like he and his sister, like these amazing tennis stars, whatever. <laughs> um, but similarly, like on, she can look at her dad and be like, "My dad does what he loves." Yeah. And my mom does what she loves, and that's great. so I feel really excited about that, about how that's going to. Um, what that's going to mean for her. I hope it helps her feel like her creativity, that she can engage in creative pursuits just for the joy of it, but that, you know, she can also think about how to make a living from from what brings her joy as well. Yeah, totally. 
Well, all of this is, I, I feel like we could talk for a couple yeah. hours because I love having this conversation with you and getting into these. But like I said, I think we're probably over time a little bit. So okay. thank you so much for, for coming out on this muggy, sweltering day. No problem. And uh, we will link, obviously, in the post and in all of our materials to where people can get a hold of you and where they can find the book and to more materials all the hustle materials Great. <laughs> we'll put yes. that all out but Danny thank you so much for, for spending the time yeah thank you Brandon this was fun this episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Lydia's on Ludlow a comfortable welcoming neighborhood cafe and coffee shop located at 329 Ludlow Avenue in Cincinnati's Clifton Gaslight District. Thanks to everyone at Lydia's for welcoming us in and taking such great care of us. You can find links to Lydia's website and social media pages on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. Lydia's has a fantastic menu of homemade soups, right out of the garden salads, and sandwiches, a lot of local and organic stuff. And in addition to a full coffee menu, uh, they serve beer, wine, and vintage cocktails and have live music, game nights, and more. Anything you want, just stop by Lydia's uh, for lunch or just a treat and be sure to tell them you heard it on The Distiller when you do. Thanks again so much to my guest, Danny McLean. If you want to find out more about Danny's work, check out her journalism on thenation.com. We have a link to her author page on The Nation on our website. And by all means, go out and get a copy of her book. It's called We Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. And it's available everywhere. We have a link. You can buy it on Amazon from our website, along with links to Danny's website and social media pages. That is all at thedistillerpodcast.com. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen and download every episode at thedistillerpodcast.com, where you'll also find links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our locations. If you liked this episode, please tell somebody about it. Follow, like, and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to help us make more of these episodes, just click the Become a Patron button on our website for more info on how you can do so. And finally, please take a second to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. We love to hear from you. You can always email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com or write to us on social media and tell us who you think should be on The Distiller to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the next episode. Whether it's by email, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, drop us a line and let us know you're listening. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson, and thanks again for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.